As we come to the ministry of the word this evening, let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. This is a somewhat familiar passage to many of us and uh, one that has occupied my interest many a day, many a day. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 and please hear the word of God as I read the first two verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek God's blessing upon this, the ministry of his word. Let's pray. O holy fathers, we bow in your presence tonight. We do so, O God, conscious of our own inability to cause your word to have effect upon us. Therefore, we pray that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit upon people and preacher alike in copious measure, measures to the end that you would give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, that as your word goes forth, it might accomplish the purpose for which you intend it. And Father, we ask that you would bless now the preaching of your word to your glory and to the good of these, your precious people. We plead these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Not always, but sometimes when people are converted to the Christian faith, they think that they must have an answer for every question which is asked of them concerning the Christian faith. And very often people who think that they must have an answer for every question concerning the Christian faith will begin to read every apologetic book that they think will be helpful to them. And they do so because they think or they feel that if they don't have an answer to every question that is asked of them, then every structure of Christianity is bound to collapse if they do not have an answer suitable or sufficient for all the questions that are put to them. Now, to be sure, far be it from me ever <laughs> to discourage such reading. And, uh, but I don't think it will take someone very long to discover while engaged in that particular pursuit that God doesn't expect any of us to have all the answers. Indeed, the Bible itself does not give us all the answers. Christians do not know everything. The Bible expresses that truth like this, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. Christians do not know everything. In fact, when Paul was writing to the Christian church in Corinth at that day in, in ancient Greece, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
For now we see through a mirror dimly or darkly. We don't know everything and we do not have ready answers for every question that is addressed to us. For years throughout the course of my own pastoral ministry, I have officiated at many funerals. And you can imagine how among some of those sad occasions, one is faced with heartbreaking tragedy. Infants dying, young men and women dying, people dying under very tragic circumstances. And on many occasions, I was asked, David, why? Why? And often I would have to say at aching times and also at times with tears that I don't know why, but I can point you to the one who does and bid you to seek him. Christians do not know everything, but we do know everything that is ultimate, that everything that ultimately and eternally matter in the long story, the big picture. We know all of the important things. You see, we need not know everything completely and exhaustively in order to know all that is necessary sufficiently. We know the answers to the questions that ache within us. Who am I? Why am I here? Why did God make me? Or uh, perhaps the more important question of these is, why am I? Why am I here? And who is God? Is there life after death? Or perhaps even more poignantly, is there life before death? Christians do not have all the answers, but we do have answers to the big questions that haunt us and taunt us. And it's not because we are especially bright or possess this keen insight or wisdom or that we're attuned to the universe in which we live. But we know these things because God has spoken. And that is the great supernatural truth I want us to consider this evening. Christianity confronts the world with unembarrassed supernaturalism. Christians are unashamed, unembarrassed supernaturalists. We believe this great supernatural truth that God has broken into time and space history. And we believe, moreover, in a God who has himself entered into history. You see, the Christian faith isn't simply the accumulated musings or contemplations of spiritually-minded men and women throughout the ages of the church. Christianity claims to be nothing less than the revealed truth of the living God, not merely another selection from the supermarket uh, shelf of religions, as it were, but Christianity makes this staggering supernatural claim of being the revelation of the only true and living God. Now, a little later, we'll be looking at how it is in Jesus Christ that God speaks to us supremely. But for the moment, think of how the New Testament itself confronts us with the reality of Jesus Christ. For example, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, 
The apostle wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And then we have this staggering statement of verse 14. And the Word... This eternal being who is the revelation of God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. We know because God himself has spoken. How anyone with a normal functioning brain in their head, I think at this time, anyone would... With, with that kind of normal thought process, we'll be thinking, well, how has God spoken? In what way has God spoken? And if God has spoken, David, as you say, why isn't everyone, for example, in Katy, Texas, a Christian? Or even more to the point, why isn't everyone in the world a Christian? If God is, and if God has spoken, why is not everyone everywhere a Christian? Now those are a few questions I want for us to consider for just a little while this evening. How has God spoken? How has God made, made known to us his reality, his existence? And if God has spoken, why is it that the whole world has not bowed down before this God to worship him? And why is it that they have not come to Christ? Now, please, first of all, and this is the first point I want us to consider this evening, consider that the God who is is the God who speaks to us in creation. God has spoken to us in creation. Consider the first four verses of the 19th Psalm, if you please. We go there and we read, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above pro proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are the, there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In other words, the psalmist sings in the 19th Psalm and says, The whole creation is smothered, as it were, with the fingerprints of God. And when the Apostle Paul addressed the Christians there at Rome, in Rome chapter 1 and verse 20, he uh, expands somewhat on what the psalmist proclaims in the 19th Psalm. And there he says, For since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen, being understood, he says, by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now what these scriptures are saying to us is very simply this, that in, God, in God's creation, God speaks to us, visibly. He speaks to us visibly in his creation. To draw upon something to which perhaps we can relate. Creation is something, if you please, like a silent film. Uh, though I myself am not old enough to recall any 
silent films that I watched from beginning to end, but I have seen them referenced uh, on television from time to time, and I think I know better than to ask for a show of hands whether there is anyone else here who does. Perhaps there is, but uh, I'm going to uh, restrain myself. But I'm confident that most of us have seen at least, at least, brief shots of such films. And just below the picture, there would be something of a subtext to explain to those who are watching the silent film what is taking place in the film. But creation is something like a silent film, but with no subtext. But notwithstanding that, it still declares to us in the singing of the psalmist, indeed that almost shouts out at us that God is, that God is majestic, that God is powerful. The heavens declare, sings the psalmist, the glory of God. And then Paul adds that this is clearly seen and understood everywhere as he presents that case in Romans. There's not a corner of the universe, he's saying, where the heavens do not declare that God is and that God is glorious. So then, what is God saying to us through this creation that he is framed by the word of his own power? What is he saying? Well, first of all, he's saying that this world in which we live is not some accidental, random chance happening. I made it, God says. It's mine because I created it. And that is what the heavens are saying to us every moment of every day. This world all around us in which we live and move and have our being was framed by the power of God out of the womb of nothing. And it is not the result of some random chance sequence of successive events. It exists by the power of God. And then the second implication of this is that God is saying to us through his creation that you are not the result of some random chance happening. God says to each of us as creator, I made you. You are my creature made in my image. You are not the autonomous creature you imagine yourself to be. You are mine. You belong to me. And you are someone who ultimately is answerable to me, your creator. And that is why the Bible makes this staggering claim that there is no such thing as an honest atheist. No such thing. And, and uh, there are millions, to be sure, of professing atheists who make that claim that there is no God. But the Bible confronts that claim head on and says, you're not even true to yourself when you declare yourself to be an atheist because the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And as Paul puts it in Romans 1, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, he argues, ever since the creation 
of the world in the things that have been made so that they are his, these people are rendered without excuse. Men and women know that God is. And we see, and we'll see in a bit that though they deny that God is, nonetheless, God continues to proclaim through creation that He is because the te heavens, they testify in every direction we look that we, you and I, are not our own. But then, then I want us to see, secondly, not only does God speak in his creation visibly, but he speaks to us in our conscience, troublingly. He disturbs our peace of conscience. The next passage I'd like for us to look at very quickly would be Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. You need not turn there. But Paul is writing to the Christian church in Rome and he is seeking to demonstrate that everyone on the face of the earth before God is guilty in God's presence. Jew and Gentile alike, religious and non-religious, without hope before God. Sin, he says, has shut us out and barred us from the presence of God. Sin has condemned us before God. And all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, privileged and unprivileged, all of us need a Savior. And in that context, Paul is dealing with people who outside the pale of what we would call special revelation, who unlike the Jews, did not have God's revealed holy law. Therefore, did that mean that what Paul was saying did not apply to them? He writes in verse 14, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they do not possess God's revealed word by nature, when they by nature do what the law requires, they are, he says, a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, that is, the written law in their hands. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts. And notice carefully these words. While their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul is saying that they do not possess the written law, but they have, as it were, through virtue of being created by God, Men and women have God's law written upon their hearts. In other words, they have the outline of God's truth in their innermost being. They know what God requires of them and their conscience either excuses or accuses them in the light of that reality. In our consciences, God speaks to us troublingly. Conscience is, if you like, God's little moral monitor that is retained of the image of God in man, even though that image has been marred. Conscience is God's watchdog within the human breast that cries foul or fair, right or wrong with my thoughts or my actions. Now, sin has, to some degree, 
disabled our consciences, but it has not obliterated or eradicated our consciences. Our consciences still function. And we feel the prick and the stab of conscience sometimes, even at the most unexpected moments of our lives that come to us right out of the blue. We become aware that something is not right. We've done something wrong, said something wrong. We have thought something wrong. We have a God-given faculty that we call conscience. And through that conscience, even though it has been marred and scarred and impaired by sin, the echoes of the voice of the true and living God continue to shout out at us and are heard by us. There is a very striking verse in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes where we read that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And that's why there's innate restlessness, this longing you see for life, this yearning for fulfillment in this world. There is a God-shaped void in all of our hearts that only God himself is big enough to fill. Our hearts are restless, said Augustine, till they rest in him. And our consciences, moment by moment, day by day, testify to that reality. Now, sometimes our consciences can go to sleep and lie dormant for a time. And people can become very arrogant from that and insist that there is no such thing as God. There are no such things as moral absolutes. There is no such thing as a heaven to gain or a hell to shun. And then suddenly, out of the blue, our consciences wake up and they begin to scream. Now, we have been reading in our pastoral studies on Wednesday mornings uh, a book by Carl Truman, a very helpful book. And... Uh, one of the poets to which Truman refers in that book, his name is William Wordsworth, and he was a British poet. And I remember when I was in high school how I had to, uh, not just in high school, but in junior high as well. I remember having to, uh, to memorize the, the uh, prelude to Evangeline, the poem. But uh, anyway, this is William Wordsworth, and he was a British poet. And this is an excerpt that he wrote from his prelude where he speaks of a time when he stole a boat and he rowed this boat into a lake. And he tells us that while he was in that boat, he was looking around and enjoying the view of the landscape around him, darkening the scene. And he says that in the midst of all that joy of what he had done, there came a sense of unknown modes of being or my thoughts. There hung a darkness. This is a man who was an atheist. And that experience of inner distress of heart over what he had done shook him for a while out of his smugness and his sense of security. Now, I have encountered people like that throughout my ministry. Life is going along rather comfortably and then rather suddenly, unexpectedly. There's a disturbance to their soul precipitated by a loss, an abrupt, unanticipated dark providence 
and they find themselves gripped by a sense of that other world of reality, a sense of divine. Now, to be sure, they cannot always put their finger upon it because they don't have the written word of God to enlighten them regarding this pain of conscience. But there it comes, as if out of nowhere, this realized sense of wrongdoing and of an inevitable accountability. Life is going along well, pleasant enough. People are confirmed in their unbelief. And then out of the blue, as Spurgeon would say, like a lightning bolt out of a clear blue sky, they're touched with a pang of conscience. And they come to an awakened sense of that other world, the reality of which they cannot in those moments deny. So God speaks to us in creation visibly. He speaks to us in, through conscience troublingly. But then, thirdly, God speaks to us in the Bible savingly. In the Bible, God gathers up, as it were, the fragments to which creation witnesses, the fragments to which conscience testifies. And in the Bible, God brings them together and clarifies them for us. It is through them that God then seeks to lead us to know Jesus Christ in whom alone there is salvation. John 17, 3, Jesus, and he said this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, he prays to his Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Think of those marvelous words that we find in the first chapter of Peter, Peter's second epistle. Uh, verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19 of his second epistle. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Or to translate it another way, made more sure. Or yet another way, more certain. He's been speaking here as an eye and ear witness himself of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And then he writes something that sounds somewhat strange to us when hearing it for the very first time. He, he was a man, again, who was an eye and ear witness of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And yet he says... We have the prophetic word made more certain. He's saying that we have something that is even more certain than my own eye and ear witness testimony. To which you will do well, he writes, to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced, he writes, by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried or literally borne along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is telling us there that the word of Holy Scripture 
is not something that has been concocted in the thoughts of men, but rather that it's God's very own disclosure of Himself. But the purpose of the Bible is not simply to inform you, or enlighten you, or to instruct you, or to educate you. The purpose of the Bible is to bring you and me to salvation in Jesus Christ. God has given us this word, not simply that we might pour over it, study it, digest it, but that through it we might be led by it to the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate. And that's what Paul meant when he wrote to Timothy in his second epistle, chapter 3. All scripture, he said, is God-breathed. All scripture but it is, verse 15, the scriptures, he said, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. For you see, it is in the Bible, it is in the Bible that all of us are confronted with God as he is, not as men have imagined him to be. Not as men have Imagined him to be in terms of drawing up a consensus of what we think God is. But he is the great, glorious, holy, pure, merciful God. And he is the God with whom we have to do. And he is the God who will one day bring all of us into account for our thoughts and for the way that we have lived in this world. The Bible again confronts us with God as he is. And it also confronts us with ourselves as we are. And not as we imagine ourselves to be. The Bible makes some very. It can make for some very distasteful reading. Because it pinpoints and it exposes the very depths of our being for what we are. It gives us an x-ray picture of our hearts. And it exposes the terminal corruption therein that no amount of technological advancements today can treat. One thing I have confirmed to me from both Bible college well, other colleges as well, in graduate school, and even in graduate schools such as seminary, is that no amount of education in the world can hide away what you truly are. In the Bible, we discover ourselves and we are brought face to face with ourselves as God sees us. And it doesn't make for a very positive self-image. As we heard this morning... You can't trust your heart. <laughs> if, if you didn't take anything else away from the sermon this morning, take that away. You cannot trust your, your heart is no safe guide. I'll never forget before I went to Bible uh, college, I was talking to this young man. And uh, he, was, he was living without the benefit of marriage with his girlfriend. And I said, well, you think that's right? To, he says, well, I know, I, I know it's right because I feel like it's right in my heart. 
That's why the prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Or perhaps a better translation of the latter part of that, the heart is incurably sick. Only God can cure such a heart. Your heart is no safe God. And, and God's word tells us that, that that is the reality in his sight. And he's saying by that, that your heart, though you, don't, no, you, though you think you can trust your heart and follow your heart, he says the reality is it's worse than you can ever imagine. You don't know the depths, God says, of your own wickedness. We, when, as long as we're comparing ourselves with others, we can make a fair fist of things, can we not? But when we are brought into con, in contact with the light of the true and living God and his holy morality and his purity, we're brought to see ourselves as God sees us. And all we can do at that point is to fall before him and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The whole purpose of the Bible, God has spoken, is to bring us to awakened sense of how desperate our condition really is and how great our need is of Christ. But then there's the last point I want to make, and it is this. That in Jesus Christ, God speaks to us personally. God speaks to us personally in Jesus Christ. Now, it's somewhat arbitrary, I think, to divide that from the Holy Scriptures because the only Jesus Christ we know is the Jesus Christ revealed in the pages of the Bible. When people speak to you about Jesus Christ, the first question that you ought to be asking them is this. What Jesus? Do you mean the Jesus revealed in the Bible? Because the only Jesus we know is the Jesus of the Bible. But in Jesus Christ, God does speak to us personally. This is, to be sure, the great note of unembarrassed supernaturalism. Consider again these words I read from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Literally, the Word was face to face with God, and yet was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, John says. That is through this word. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Who is this word of whom John speaks? And we go down to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, John says. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He has made him known, John says. This is the great note of unembarrassed biblical supernaturalism. This is biblical Christianity. In Jesus Christ, God became flesh. And when you really begin to think about that, it tends to blow the mind away. How can you begin to begin to wrap your head around such a supernatural event. The everlasting God, the incomprehensible God, assuming to himself flesh in the womb 
of a young Palestinian maiden. And yet John declares in unembarrassed supernaturalism, that's how it was. The creator becomes creature without ceasing to be creator. And he joins to his cre creator the frailty of human flesh. Now, if we had time, we could trace out from the Gospel of John how he proclaims from the outside. What he proclaims from the outside becomes the key which unlocks everything in John's Gospel. He calls apart from the staggering reality of what he declares there at the outset of his Gospel. Everything that follows would make no sense. Jesus could look at those around him and say, which of you? convicts me of sin. Well, if he is only a man, someone might have said, well, whoever let him out of the insane asylum? He claimed, and they said, and they saw that he raised the dead, that he healed the sick, he fed the multitudes. He was in the boat with his disciples. There was this great storm, and he stood up and he spoke. He spoke to the waves and to the wind, and he said, Peace be still. And suddenly there was a great calm, and the response was the, of the disciples was they were utterly terrified. And they looked at one another in amazement and said, Who, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? In Jesus Christ, God confronts us with himself. But then the second question we ought to ask as we wrap this up, if God has spoken to us through creation visibly, if he has spoke to us troublingly through our consciences, if he speaks to us savingly in the Bible and personally in Jesus Christ, if God has spoken, then why is it everyone in the world a Christian? Why are Christian churches not absolutely full on Sundays. If God has spoken, why is it everyone a Christian? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is very searching. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed literally. That's translated, it is presently being revealed. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Who suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest or plain in them, for God has shown it to them. Why are people not Christians? It's because they suppress. That is, they hold down the truth, Paul says, in unrighteousness because they do not like what the heavens declare. They do not like what their consciences have to say. They do not like what the Bible reveals. And they do not like what Christ makes plain or manifest. They hold down the truth. God is simply not convenient for them. In other words, the problem, and it never is an intellectual one, 
Never. No matter how people may claim that's their problem, it is profoundly and preeminently a moral problem. Make no mistake. Imagine how offensive that may sound to the most aggressive atheist. But that's why everyone is not a Christian, because we hold down the truth and unrighteousness. Because for many people, it is not convenient to bow to the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what sin does, it not only defiles us, but it deifies us and says, I'm going, going to be my own God. It makes ourselves the center of the universe and it assumes that we are answerable to no one, no one else. And you see where that has led to in our own day. When God sent one of his angelic messengers, and again, the Bible is full of such unembarrassed supernaturalism. He sends an angelic messenger to a man by the name of Joseph. And he informs him, Joseph, the girl to which you're betrothed, she's pregnant. She's with child. Joseph and, and you can imagine what a shock it must have been to Joseph to hear that. But God, through his angel, expressed it and explained it. And God says, now Joseph, through the angel, when this baby is born, you're going to give him the name Jesus. Because Jesus means God is Savior. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to educate any of us. He came into the world to deliver us from our sins and to save us from hell and bring us to heaven by virtue of being in union with himself. He came in the world to change us from being men and women centered in self to being centered in God. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now that's the good news that we as Christians proclaim supremely to the world. That in Jesus Christ, we can be restored, we can be rescued, we can be redeemed, we can be renewed. Because God has come to us in the person of his Son. So why has God spoken? Not simply to fill our minds with correct thoughts, though our minds need to have correct thoughts, but rather to transform our being that we might become children and worshipers and servants of the God of the Bible. God has spoken, and the only question is this. Will you hear him? Will you listen to him? Will you continue, if you're not a believer, to hold down the truth in unrighteousness? God has spoken to us supremely in his Son, and it is in his Son, in Christ crucified and risen again from the dead, that all of our deepest needs can be met. May God help us to hear not only the voice of creation, the voice of conscience, but to be led by Scripture, to hear the voice 
of the one who became flesh and who died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God.